as we've talked about quite a bit, um, we feel like God in, has really challenged us that in this 10th year as a church to set aside this year uh, as a year of prayer. Not that we're praying for one specific thing, uh, although there are, there are many things that we're longing to see God do. We're longing to see awakening. Uh, we're longing to see revival. We're longing to see transformation in our community and beyond. But we feel God has just invited us into this season of prayer to focus on that, to be trained in that, for him to take us into deeper places with prayer. It's always been underneath everything that we've done and behind everything that we have done and who we are as a church, but we're feeling like he's asking us to place it front and center for this year. And so uh, we have some friends that are beginning to give some really strong and focused leadership uh, towards that. We're deeply appreciative of that. Uh, we have been using the upper room here at the Varsity, the room that is upstairs that we have dubbed the upper room, and uh, we're doing monthly prayer nights uh, as a part of that. And so I want to encourage you as the church family to come and to be a part of that. Uh, the next one is February 24th, so it's, it's always going to be the fourth Monday night uh, of every month is we're going to set it aside for that focus. And so we invite you to come and be a part of that and continue to sow into that with us. Um, again, it's not that we're trying to pull some lever to make God do something for us. It's not what prayer is about. Prayer is being present to God. We recognize that he is always present. He is everywhere. His pr- uh, also, today I want to challenge you uh, to be a part of the love mission that is happening this afternoon so at 1.30, uh, as you heard, as Pastor April already shared with us, and we had some of the kids sharing with us, uh, you guys have helped put together 100 cards that are going to go to uh, the local uh, senior living center. And uh, so we're going to get to go and deliver those personally. And if you want to be a part of that, we'd love to have you come and, and to uh, be that physical, uh, tangible representation of the love of Jesus to people right here in our community who often feel marginalized and forgotten. And so we want to be on the forefront of that and, and to, to hand deliver those cards. So I invite you to be a part of that. Okay, so that's our love mission for February. If, you, if that name sounds weird, the love mission, uh, then that's something that we've been doing since the beginning of this church. And the thought behind that is uh, that these are experiments in grace. Okay, these are intentional moves of love. It's not a random act of kindness. Right, we don't believe in random acts of kindness. Instead, it's an intentional move of love to tangibly express the creative love of Jesus in our community. Okay, So I uh, would really encourage your uh, small group to come up with a love mission to carry out, uh, or maybe your group of friends, or maybe you have an idea yourself of a way to express the tangible love of Jesus in this community. That's a part of who we are as a church. So let's keep those love missions going, okay? Let's keep the the creativity going on that. All right, today we're going to be in John chapter 3. That's where we're going to start today uh, uh, as we continue our series. Jesus, be with us this morning. As we open up the word, we know that you are the word that has lost its edge for us in many ways. And so that just rolls off of us when we hear it. 
But we're going to examine it again in its original context here. So this is an interaction between Jesus and uh, Nicodemus. And so what we've been looking at through this series of Jesus people, as we're looking at people that encounter Jesus and they're transformed by that encounter, most of the time we've been looking at the early adopters, that people that immediately recognize who Jesus is and they're drawn to his ministry. Many of them being uh, surprising people who are drawn to his ministry and immediately recognizing who he is. Today we're shifting core on that. And today is more for the skeptics and the curious who often move at a slower pace on this journey of faith. It is good for us to celebrate the early adopters, okay, and that, that leap of faith that they take in that moment. But we are reminded that the kingdom calling is what the poet Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction, It's good to be an early adopter, but the kingdom calling is a long obedience in the same direction. So let's start reading John chapter 3. We're going to look at, uh, we're going to start with verse 1, and we're actually going to go all the way through verse 21, okay? So let's walk through this together. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can a person be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But you do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Hear it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but they love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly 
that what they do is done through God. Amen? Amen. Beautiful, powerful interaction and passage here. So let's take a look at a few of the key pieces uh, that, that are happening here. This person of Nicodemus that we're, that we're going to look at today, we're going to see his journey uh, move through three different phases. And the first phase of his journey, uh, we're just going to label as curious. Okay, we've got this moment of him being curious and he comes to Jesus to have this conversation with him. A few key words that we need to circle and and point out here at the beginning. Uh, First of all, it it represents him as a Pharisee. Okay, it says that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Does anybody know what that word means? Who knows what that means? Somebody shout it out. Religious. Okay, exactly. Keep going. What else? A fundamental religious believer. Okay. Old law, legalist. Knows the Torah. Absolutely. Absolutely. A master of that in and out of the Holy Scriptures. What else? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Knows the Bible. An expert in God's word. Okay. So this is who we're talking about here. This group of the Pharisees, they were religious leaders, and they saw themselves as the guardians of God's word and of the guardians of the holy ways of God among the religious community there, among the Jewish community. And so they took this role very seriously, all right? Uh, A lot of times uh, we just automatically assume that they were Uh, legalistic because they were um, so protective of this, okay? And a lot of times we set them up as the enemies of Jesus as we walk through the Gospels. And the reality is that many of us would really line right up with the Pharisees, okay? I'm a Pharisee, all right? I'm a Pharisee. I'm a wannabe Pharisee, all right? They were way more skilled and smart than I am and studied than I am. But they were the ones who thought they were on the inside of the kingdom of God and therefore thought that they were the guardians of the doorway into the kingdom of God. And because of this, they become opposition to Jesus's ministry when they see this happening. So Nicodemus was a member of the Pharisees, but there was something in Nicodemus's heart and mind and there was something about the ministry of Jesus He was drawn to Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus to ask these questions. Tell me who you are. Teach me more about these things that you have been teaching the common people. Give me an inside lesson here. I have questions. Will you take the time to answer these questions for me? My heart leans towards Nicodemus in this moment. All right. I love this. So he comes to him and it says that he comes to him at night Uh, That is an important distinction for multiple reasons. Um, One, because it's symbolic of this theme that runs throughout the Gospel of John. This this distinction between darkness and light uh, is a key theme throughout John's Gospel. In fact, in John chapter 1, in the introduction to his Gospel, seven times in this poetic prologue that he gives at the beginning of his Gospel, seven times he mentions the word light. So he's setting up Jesus as the embodiment of the light of God. He is the light. And he makes this statement of light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. 
It's these statements and these themes from John where we draw like the lyrics that we were just singing of Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. The light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. So immediately as we see that he's coming to Jesus in the darkness and at night, then we see this theme of the darkness of his own mind and heart at this moment of not fully understanding, meeting with Jesus as the light. But it also is very important because it shows his fear and it shows his hesitation. So he's coming under the, the cover of darkness. Yes, he is curious and we honor that. But it's important also to point out that he's secretly curious. All right, he's seeking out Jesus under the cover of darkness. Why? Because he was afraid of the other Pharisees. The Pharisees likely uh, would have seen Jesus in about the same way that the um, religion department at UNC would see the pit preacher. All right. Now, I'm not uh, equating the religion department at UNC with the Pharisees any more than I would be equating the pit preacher with Jesus. <laughs> Definitely not doing that. All right. But this is the dynamic of how they would have seen themselves. I'm the expert. I've studied this. I know this inside and out. You're this common person out there stirring up the mob. Okay. So it would have been that kind of scene, this total dismissal of Jesus in the minds and the hearts of the Pharisees. So there was a lot of fear in him going to Jesus. And so he comes to him under the cover of darkness, which I think is really important. We've pointed this out before, but I think it's so important that this statement that we think is so safe, that it's one of the first things that we teach our kids. If we're going to teach them a Bible verse, this is the one we start with, right? For God so loved the world. And yet the first time it gets mentioned, it's whispered like a conspiracy under the cover of darkness. Isn't a powerful thought, this exchange, as Jesus is saying this for the very first time and the first time that this gets mentioned. So another important thing that's happening here is Jesus uses this imagery of being born again, okay? Born again. And immediately for some of you, you might be making the connection to like uh, the political evangelical right, okay? Just go ahead and cut that off. That's not what we're talking about here today, all right? Has nothing to do with that. This statement that Jesus makes is this powerful image that he gives about entering into a new Life. It would have been powerful and difficult for Nicodemus to get his mind around for multiple reasons. One, because Nicodemus, again, is the guardian of this community that tied so much of their identity to the circumstances of their birth. Okay, they connected their identity to, to, their, to their birth, to their heritage, to that bloodline and that lineage that they found themselves in. They were the children of Abraham. Their entire existence as a people was miraculous from the beginning. All right, Abraham and, and Sarah unable to have children. And then at the, when Abraham is 100 years old, they give birth to their, to their child, Isaac, who is the, prom, the child of promise. And so they draw their heritage down through that bloodline. They are the children of Abraham. Their very existence is a miracle of God's working that the world is still talking about. 
They saw themselves as, as the inheritors of the promise of God. Their birthright as a people uh, was, were the law, it was the law of Moses, the words of the prophets, the victories of David and Esther and Daniel and Deborah and Jonah. All of that is what they're inheriting as a people, and they're tying that to the circumstances of their birth. This is what is running in their blood. So when Jesus talks about being born again, Nicodemus liked the way he was born in the first place. He didn't think he needed for that to happen again. But this isn't just an analogy for him of a fresh start, but this picture of a larger family that God is claiming as his own and that God is instituting in the world. A Pharisee was living in the full-fledged privilege of all of that heritage of their bloodline. And in this moment, Jesus is challenging that in Nicodemus, and he's saying it's not enough. That's not enough. The key thought is this, the most important thought. While that piece is more cultural and it's about the context of this moment and how Nicodemus would have received this, the key thought that, that transcends the cultures and that comes all the way to us today is this, that what Jesus is talking about is this invitation to enter into a whole new life and into a whole new world through the transforming grace of Jesus. And he says, you must be born again. To enter into the kingdom of God, you must lay down your life, and you must experience the new life of Jesus that is given to you. For some of you, today might be that day that your heart is opening up. And even in this moment, you feel your mind opening up, your heart opening up, something in your soul opening up and reaching out to embrace that. And Jesus is promising that to you today. You might not think you're worthy of that. And the truth is you're not and none of us are. And that's the beauty of grace is that he gave it to us not because we earned it, but because he is love. And he extends that love to every single one of us. And if you want to embrace that new life that is available through Jesus today, then he's offering it to you right now. If that's you, then I want to encourage you. In your seats, there are the, uh, the, the cards. And I want you to fill out one of those cards and mark on there that you want to become a follower of Jesus. And we'll follow up with you and walk that road with you. For some of you, you might not want to tell us that. You might want that to be just a private moment. And in that, we just encourage you to simply pray a prayer of just surrendering your life to Jesus. All you have to say is, I'm yours. I'm yours. That's all you have to say. Surrender your life to Jesus and embrace the new life that he has given to you. It doesn't seem like that happens for Nicodemus in this moment. For some of you, it might be happening right now. But in the story that we're looking at here, Nicodemus, it doesn't seem like that is happening for him in this moment. Before we move on, let's pray. Jesus, if there are people in the room that are feeling that draw today, then I just pray that you would do what you do. And that you would, in your own creative and grace-filled and love-powered way, 
invite them to walk with you. We can get caught up into thinking that it's about the way we might present it or give the invitation, but we're not the ones who are giving the invitation. So I pray that you would get us out of the way of that. And if there's someone who's wanting to surrender their life to you, then I pray that you would fight through every obstacle and make it clear to them that now's the time and that they can trust you and that you're not going anywhere. The invitation is simple. He simply says, come follow me and I will give my life to you. If you're willing to embrace that, then simply pray, I'm yours. Amen. Amen. So it doesn't seem like Nicodemus experiences this change or embraces that moment of belief here in this confrontation with Jesus. He has a literal come to Jesus moment, all right? And yet we don't see him walking away seeming to be changed by that. Instead, we see questions and we don't get the sense that he understands the fullness of what it is that he has just experienced. And so Jesus is talking to him about this image of new birth, of being born again, but it doesn't seem like a birth takes place at this moment. However, it's really important for us to recognize that even in choosing this language, Jesus gives us a patient and gracious imagery of a journey, right? Even in choosing that language of new birth, that in our minds that that image starts to play out and we see this long and progressive kind of journey that takes place in our lives. Birth is absolutely something that happens in a moment. Like the doctor will give a time to the date of your birth, okay? And will write it on your birth certificate, I think. Do they write that on birth certificate? They write it down somewhere. Somebody knows, all right? And so there's this moment and they mark it and they're like, okay, this is the moment of your birth. So birth is absolutely something that happens in a moment. But at the same time, it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. You have everything that happens prior to that moment of birth. There's that long road of conception, of development, of preparations, of contractions, and of labor, okay? And all of that is part of the whole process. So even in using this image of the new birth, Jesus infuses this with something that does happen in a moment, a line that gets crossed but also helps us to understand that this can be a long road and a process, and there's patience and there's grace in that imagery. So what happens to Nicodemus? Most of the time when we talk about his story, we just talk about chapter three and we leave it there. But he actually comes back into the story in the Gospel of John. Later in chapter seven, we have another moment where uh, the other Pharisees are opposing Jesus again, and they're in such opposition to Jesus that they have sent the temple guards to go and arrest Jesus in the midst of his teaching. But when the temple guards go and they hear everything that Jesus has to say, they get swept up in it too, and they walk away and say, we can't arrest this guy, all right? And so they come back to report that. And here's what it says in John chapter 7, starting with verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. 
You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. I love it. First of all, prophets do come out of Galilee, all right? There's one named Jonah. You may have heard of him, all right? And they ignore, even in their, in their, their pride of being the ones who have the grip on the knowledge of the law, they ignore the law itself. The ones who are trying to protect their own history, they forget their own history. And Nicodemus has the courage to risk the raising of questions in this moment. So we see something has taken place in Nicodemus. He's not completely willing to go along with the rest of the ruling group at this moment. And he begins to ask questions. Wait a minute. Shouldn't we give him a chance to hear what he has to say? Maybe we should bring him in and have him speak to us and share with us. And they say, are you one of his number too? Are you from Galilee like he is? I love that statement that they make to the, to the temple guards. Do any of the Pharisees believe in him? No, it's just that crazy mob out there. And then Nicodemus is like, well, I've got a question. And you can see it begin to seep in. Even in this moment, by refusing to dismiss Jesus, we see that Nicodemus pays a price for that. By refusing to dismiss Jesus, he gets dismissed by the other people around the table. And for some, this moment of conflict would be a lesson learned and would be the end of the road. But something seems to happen in him. Perhaps this moment of being conflicted, of moving from being curious to being conflicted begins to give birth to something in him. They quieted his external conflict in that moment but they didn't heal the conflict that was happening inside of him. They just actually fueled it. And he probably begins to ask himself more questions since they shut his questions down. Why don't they want me to ask questions? What is it that they are afraid of? He moves from curious to conflicted, but still he quiets down in that moment. There's no bold declaration that follows that. Up. So what happens to him after this? There's one more time that we end up seeing Nicodemus show up in the Gospel of John. It's in chapter 19, starting with verse 38 and going through uh, verse 42. Here's when he shows up one more time. Sorry, I'm trying to find it. There it is. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. This is after Jesus' crucifixion. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. 
Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So this is the last time that we see Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. At this point, he has come out of the shadows, and he's moved from curious and conflicted into a place of being committed. Now, why would this scene right here show us that Nicodemus had taken this step across the line somewhere to allowing himself to be seen as being committed to Jesus? Why does this act right here demonstrate his commitment? Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the danger of being associated with Jesus. He's seen what they have just done to Jesus. The disciples are all hiding now because of that because the threat isn't just to Jesus. Now they will come and do the same thing to any of his followers who want to continue to speak up. And yet he risks that association with Jesus. In his death, he puts his own life on the line with Jesus's. The second is this, and this is the most important part of it. It tells us that it was the preparation day. Preparation day for what? For the celebration of the Passover feast. Remember, Nicodemus was a member of the ruling council of the religious leaders. And the Passover celebration was one of the key moments of the year for them. A key worship moment where a a part of that would be the sacrificing of a lamb. Remembering how God had set the people free from Egypt and brought them out of slavery and into freedom, into the promise. So this is a key moment for the Jewish community every year. Nicodemus would have been at the top of that. Here's the thing. One of the, thing that would dis- one of the things that would disqualify you from being allowed to participate in worship would be the handling of a dead body. It would mean you could not be a part of a worship celebration. And so Nicodemus, who would be expected to be there, who out of his own deep love for his history and heritage and all that God had done, for his people, was longing to be there, was looking forward to being a part of this celebration for all that that meant to him personally, for all that it would cost him for having to miss that. He risks all of that to handle the dead body of Jesus and to be a part of his burial. What Nicodemus didn't realize in that moment was he was handling the ultimate Passover lamb the one who had laid down his life as the once and for all sacrifice for his people and for the entire world to bring us into a reconciled relationship with God, the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of the world. And Nicodemus, in this moment of crossing a line somewhere, stepped right into the middle of that commitment. We don't know where it was. We don't know what the real turning point moment was for Nicodemus. Maybe it was seeing the crucifixion of Jesus and that breaking his heart to such an extent that he gives his heart to Jesus in this moment. It's hard to know exactly where and when this transformation really happens in Nicodemus's life. In fact, it takes the entire book for him to get there. What an encouragement to us today. 
One of the things I love most about this community is that this is a community that's hungry for knowledge and hungry for the truth. This is a community that is full of questions, and you need to know that those questions are welcome here. Jesus is not afraid of your questions. Jesus welcomes your curiosity. Jesus welcomes your conflict and those questions that you are wrestling with inside of you. And he will walk with you in patience all the way to that point of commitment. He won't quit on you. He will keep walking with you. For some of you, what you need to hear today is this. The path is more important than the pace. The path is more important than the pace. You look around you and you might see people who seem on fire in their faith. And you're at this point of you're not really ready to cross that line yet. You're not completely sure what you think about this whole thing. You need to know that you're welcome here. And that Jesus invites you and and is walking with you on that journey. He's patient in that. The path is more important than the pace. Keep walking with him. Keep leaning into those questions that you have. What was conceived in that moment of curiosity for Nicodemus grew into conflict and then gave birth to commitment. And what we appear to be looking at here at the end of the book is a new Nicodemus. Born again, Nicodemus. Amen. Amen. He's walking that journey with you. And he's going to be patient. And he's telling you today, the path is more important than the pace. For some of you who've made a decision today, or maybe in this moment here, as you hear his invitation to you in the depths of your heart, and you have come to a moment where you say, I was curious, I was conflicted, and now I don't know exactly when it happened, but I'm committed. I'm committed. Uh, In a couple of weeks, we're going to have a baptism service, February 23rd. On Sunday, I know it's February in the creek outside. That's going to take some courage, man. That's another C we're going to add to that, all right? (laughs) But for some of you, it's time. It's time to take that step and to make a public declaration. I am a follower of Jesus. I was curious. I was back in the shadows, and now I'm ready to make this bold commitment. If that's you, then we invite you to indicate on the card, stop by the next steps table or email us. And we would love to walk with you through that moment of commitment that is expressed in baptism. Today, we're going to share in the other sacrament of the church, the Lord's Supper. Jesus, on his last night with his disciples, took all of their history in his hands, and he said, you know this story, but it's about to take a turn that you did not expect. This bread, he said, is my body, broken to make you whole. Then he took the cup that was on the table, and he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant, My blood, the blood of the ultimate Passover lamb, poured out for the salvation of the world and the redemption of all people. He invites you to embrace that today, to move from that place of curiosity or conflict and to signify your commitment by embracing what he has done 
for you. If you want to participate in communion, then we invite you to come to either this side or that side. Uh, If you need a gluten-free option, that will be available for you right here. As you come forward, you simply tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good. He is inviting all of you to come to his table and to share in what he has done for you. Amen.